Today we're going to be reading from the book of Hosea, chapter 1, verses 2 through 7. If you're new to the Bible, you can find the book of Hosea in the table of contents. So Hosea, chapter 1, verses 2 through 7. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Dilbaim, and, con- and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Je- Jehu for the massacre of Jezreel, and it will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lorohamah, which means not loved, for I will no longer show love to Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them, not by the bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. Thanks, Irina. We're going to miss you. Irina's getting married in how many weeks? Three weeks. I got to get ready. I'm, doing, I'm officiating that one. <laughs> Good reminder. Let me ask you a question. What would it take for you to cut someone off in your life? A bad text, maybe a period of silence, um, a cold shoulder one day. What would it take for you to just be like, I'm done with you? I guess that question would have everything to do with the kind of relationship you have with that person, right? Depending on the kind of shared commitment and expectation would change everything, right? Um, Not talking to your spouse for a couple of weeks would probably be a lot bigger deal than someone you just met at work, correct? Right? So depending on the relationship, it changes. The same action changes greatly, and certain wrongs are magnified based on the kind of commitment you have. And so let's consider the greatest commitment we have in our culture, marriage. What would it take for you to be done with a spouse? Now, whether you're married or you could be married, what, what, could a spouse have, what would a spouse have to do before you're saying, enough is enough? Cold shoulder? A bad text? A bad meal? Or, or maybe something much worse? What would it take? And, and maybe a question that we can now ask is, what about God? What would it take for God to be done with a people? At what point would God just be like, I am done with you? How long would he have to wait? How bad would the deeds have to be before God says enough is enough? What happens if you cheat on God for hundreds of years despite repeated warnings? What happens? See, we're going to be exploring that question and many more in the text today because we're really wrestling through, does God have, can he ever run out of patience? Can God ever get to the point where he just looks at us and says, I'm done. I'm just done. We're going to learn about that here. If you're not familiar with the Bible, this is actually one of the most scandalous stories in the Bible. And so I'm scanning quickly, and I'm not seeing anybody under middle school, I think. So if you are elementary, this may be a little much. Um, This is definitely not a PG-rated story. But we have to be faithful with what the Bible says and not shrink back from hard things. We're going to be going over this scandalous relationship between Hosea and Gomer over the next few months. 
gratefully none of the kids that we just prayed for are named Gomer. That, that is an interesting name. But this story is a story of immense treachery, but unfathomable love. Immense treachery, and yet unfathomable love. Both are highlighted greatly. If you are a skeptic, or maybe you never go to a church, I don't know all the visitors here. Maybe you only are here because you're, you're forced here because of the baby dedication. This is a really great opportunity for you to be here because this story actually gets to the very heart of Christianity. So if you're like, what is Christianity about? This is a great time. And I'm really grateful you're here and really encouraged by your courage to be here because if you haven't been here before, it could be very scary, and I know what that's like. Also, I need to note that the title of this message is called Children of an Affair. And if you read along with the passage, you notice that it talks about naming kids and kids. I promise I did not choose this text because we're doing the baby dedication today. Okay? Something that we do at our church, we're committed to something called expository preaching, which basically means that wherever the Bible goes, we're going to go. We're going to teach it verse by verse, and we're going to what, see what God says to his people. And just so happened to be that the day we're doing baby dedication is the day we're talking about children of an affair. So um, that, that's a little silly, but I just want you to know that's our commitment, that I was like, oh, no, not today. Not today, Lord. <laughs> I'm not doing it on purpose, okay? So let me remind you kind of where we're going on. Whenever you read anything in the Bible or any text of anything, right, you want to know kind of what's the, what's the context? What's going on? So let me give you an idea. Two weeks ago, Ross gave us the background. If you missed that, you can check it out on the website or the podcast. Um, let me remind you that Hosea is primarily addressing the people of Israel. Now, there's a map that's going to be on the screen. Um, maybe you knew this or maybe you didn't, but after Solomon, which was King David's son, Solomon had a son, and his son ruined things royally, okay? He t ruined things really bad to where uh, the kingdom split to two kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom. Oh, my gosh, you can't even see that. As I'm talking, I'm like, yeah, they totally get what I'm saying, and you can't even see it. Okay, so in the northern kingdom, just look up, uh, that's the kingdom of Israel, and the capital was Samaria. And the southern region would be Judah. And the capital would be Jerusalem. Now, the reason why that's important is for you to understand is that they're both are going to be compared in this text. And also, um, God is dispatching Hosea to preach in the northern region to help those people turn back to God. Okay, so hopefully that kind of orients you a little bit. And let me give you kind of an idea of what was going on in Israel this time. Have you guys ever heard of the terminology, it was the best of time and the worst of times? That, that's what was going on in Israel at this time. It was the best of times, but it was also the worst of times. Best of times because trade was up. They were bawling in money. They were prosperous. They had peace. Their, their government was strong. Their military was strong. And so Israel was thinking they're, they're doing pretty well. They're very comfortable. However, it was the worst of times because they were spiritually bankrupt. Let me give you a glimpse of that. Look at Hosea 13.6. If you have a Bible, you can flip to Hosea 13.6 real quick, or it will be on the screen. This is kind of what happened to Israel, and this was warned in Deuteronomy. But verse 6 says this, But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their hearts was lifted up. Or in other words, they were, became proud or self-sufficient. Therefore, they forgot me. The me is Yahweh. The me is God. They forgot him. And so they kind of did what all of us kind of historically do. Humans historically don't do well with good. We, we historically don't do well when things are perfect and 
going great. And what happened is Israel was richly blessed financially and militarily and all these other ways. And so they start being, hey, this is us. Man, we're amazing. This is why we're so good. Because of us, not because of God. And they totally forgot God and they became totally self-reliant on themselves. And so therefore, God sent a prophet, Hosea, to warn Israel, no, no, no. You forgot the very source of life. You forgot the one whom you exist for. Turn back to him. Now, if you were to sit in a strategy session with God and said, all right, God, we're going to send a prophet to Israel and we're going to help turn them back. What would you say to him? What would you think? What would be the great grand design plan to find a way to waken up these sleeping, spiritually sleeping Israelites? Well, maybe you can come up with a plan where you can get a giant army and march to the capital of Samaria and just slaughter all the leaders because the leaders were leading the people. Or maybe you can go to the temples and just start flipping tables and destroying things because the, the priests that day were totally corrupting the religion. Or, or maybe you would go around the streets and just preach like Jonah did in Nineveh. They didn't do any of those things. Israel was so callous, so hardened, so spiritually asleep that they needed something that was so shocking, so neck-jerking that would wake them up. It wasn't merely enough for them to hear a prophet say, repent, repent, judgment's coming. It wasn't even enough for them to see a war. They needed something to just waken them up. And so what they did is that God used Hosea to create a living illustration right in front of their face, a shocking illustration to show them the state that they were in. Let's look at, take a deeper dive in this illustration. Would you look at verse 2, Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord, and I'm going to say Yahweh interchangeably with the Lord because those are the same thing. That's God's personal name for his covenant people. When Yahweh first spoke through Hosea, so he's speaking through Hosea, how does he do it? Yahweh spoke and said to, said to Hosea, go take for yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking Yahweh. I hope we can pause and feel the, the insanity of this command. The text literally says that God spoke through Hosea, and the way he does it is he tells him to marry, and forgive my language, it's what the Bible says, marry a whore. Now, I think we have a handful of junior hires, especially up there. If you guys don't usually listen in church, Maybe the fact that the Bible talks about horror is, is per getting your interest. But this is a really, really sad thing. This is a really messed up thing. The word Hebrew in the original Hebrew here is actually whore. It's a, it's a really dark, heavy thing. And if you were to translate it very literally, the Jerusalem Bible transla transla translates it like this. Go marry a whore and get children with a whore, for the whole country itself has become nothing but a whore by abandoning Yahweh. Now, if you guys are feeling offended at all and saying, how dare you? Are you just enjoying saying that word? Are you just getting your kicks up because you can never say things like that in church? This is, this is shocking for them as it's shocking, should be shocking to us. We don't know exactly about her. They could have used the Hebrew word zona, which is a prostitute. We don't know if Gomer was actually a prostitute. Um, but what we do know is that she... She had some sort of unfaithfulness either in her past, maybe she was the girl that made its way around the whole block, or maybe God knew that she would be cheating on her on Hosea one day. It, the, the text is ambiguous. It just says she's an unfaithful woman, a whore um, of a woman. 
and, and I know that's offensive, and I want you guys to track with me because you're going to see why Yahweh is using this kind of language. But at least we can say she's not the girl that you're excited to bring home to mom and dad. Okay? This isn't the dream girl that, uh, that you journal about as a kid. Oh, do kids journal? No, they, they don't journal. But some kids do, very autistic kids. Um, this is not the girl you dream about. Can you imagine the pain of Hosea to get this command? Hosea, I know you are single and you're just longing to get married, but you're going to have to marry Gomer over there. And there's a number of singles, singles in our church. Imagine if God gave you guys, singles, a number of dreams and miracles to confirm it really was him and it wasn't like a demon. <laughs> and he said, hey, I want you to marry someone that you know for sh- that." that I promise you will actually cheat on you. Can you imagine how that you would feel? Imagine if God told you, marry this person, and they, are, they will, guarantee, cheat on you. Hosea's obedience is inspiring to me. And this doesn't make sense. If you've read the Bible, this doesn't make sense. Holy men do not do such things. They don't fraternize with such girls. Which reminds us that holy gods, like the God of the Bible, should not fraternize with people like us. He shouldn't deal with people like us. He shouldn't marry people who he knows will be unfaithful to him. And yet he does. See, this is a shocking command fitting for an improbable bride. So you remember a couple weeks ago, Ross talked about God, marriage was a big theme in Hosea. And this is unusual in the Bible. You don't and this is unusual in the world. When you think of a God, you don't think about being married to a God. Now, again, this, this is not a sexual thing. It's, it's, a, it's a relational reality that you have in marriage. And so what you see is that you don't see this God who's aloof and separate and distant, but, but a God who's passionately in love with his people who has a heart that's tender, a heart that has loved him, loved these people in such a way that he has is, is put his heart out there on a platter that can be crushed. We see a God whose heart moves towards people and cares about them deeply, not an apathetic, deistic God who just kind of watches with his arms crossed thinking, oh, look at those people. No, no, but a heart, a, a heart that goes right into the midst of the mess. See, Israel's actions are absolutely shocking and disgusting in light of God's incredible commitment to them. All of heaven is just gawking and saying, there's no way Israel can keep loving, uh, keep spurning God like this. There's no way that they can keep ignoring him and cheating on God, and yet they do. Let let me illustrate the best that I can how shocking God's and Israel's actions are, okay? This is my best job, my, my best shot. I googled most desirable men in the world, okay? So if any of you guys get my reports on my accountability, that, that's why I did that. Um, and there, um, I got a lot of top 100 lists of most desirable men or sexiest men in 2019. I didn't recognize most of the top 10, which I was like, I think that's a good thing, right? I didn't, but I did recognize number 10. Number 10 is Chris Hemsworth, okay? Do you guys know who Chris Hemsworth is? He's Thor. I know Thor. I watch Marvel movies, okay? Now, Suggest with me that he is very desirable, okay? Let's suppose he is and he's attractive or whatever, if you're into that, if you're into muscles and good looks, okay? And imagine Chris Hemsworth makes the news, shocking news, on the National Enquirer and every tabloid and 
all the Twitter sphere just loses their mind. Chris pursues this unknown country girl who doesn't even look very attractive, and he marries her. And people are just losing their mind. They're saying, like, oh, she's not pretty. She's not good enough for Chris. Oh, my gosh, I should be with Chris, all that kind of stuff, right? And it's going crazy. And let's just say that Chris Hemsworth is actually a really, really humble, great guy. And they get married, and he's, like, not self-absorbed. Somehow he works out, and yet he's not absorbed at all himself. Um, and, and he's so humble, and he's a servant, and he's so loving, and so committed to her. And let's just imagine on the wedding night, she leaves him, and she cheats on him with a bunch of hobos on the street that she just meets. And can you imagine the shock and outrage? All the girls have said, how dare they break his heart? If I were they, I would never leave you. Chris, at Chris Hemsworth, I will never leave you. Pick me, pick me, right? You can just imagine the shock, all right? And I'm being kind of funny, but you could imagine how people would just lose their minds, saying, how could a guy at that stature, that good looking, that rich, that great, be cheated on by that girl? What's wrong with that girl? How could she cheat on Chris? What is she thinking? How could, does she not see how good he is and how great he is? Now, this is a, a terrible illustration when you compare it to God, because it's much, much worse. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 through 8. Deuteronomy chapter 7, it'll be on the screen again. This is one of the most important passages in the Old Testament, and this is kind of giving you a backstory of why did God choose Israel. If you guys ever wonder, like, why would God choose Israel? Why Israel? Well, here's why. For you are a people, holy to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possessions out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than other people that the Lord Yahweh set his love on you and chose you. For actually, you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because Yahweh loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That Yahweh has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Okay, so if, if you weren't able to understand all that, maybe you're not uh, used to this kind of language. The God of the universe chooses Israel to marry and commit himself and to give, that, give Israel all of him. To lavish on them protection, love, and provision. That this nation among all nations, he will elevate and love and care for and bless. And yet, he knows that Israel will cheat on him. And Israel does cheat on him. Israel cheats on him with a bunch of bums that she hopes will love and protect and provide better than God. See, that's, that's the issue of idolatry and unfaithfulness in Israel. Israel is going to other nations like Egypt and other nations and other idols, worshiping other gods, hoping that they will provide better, that they will love better, that they will um, protect them better. Which is really kind of the issue of all idolatry. And, and you may say, hey, well, I don't go to other nations, and I don't worship like Buddhas and statues like that. And, and I bet you don't, okay? That, that would be very strange in this day and age. But what you do do what I do is that we look to other things or people to provide protection, provision, and love outside of God. A career, a hobby, money, a relationship. We cling to it, hoping that that would give us life. So, 
Hosea is commanded to do what God did. Hosea, do what I do. Choose to love someone like I love them, knowing full well that they will cheat on you. Choose someone that isn't worthy of your love because they aren't. Hosea isn't in love. He's choosing to love, just like God does. Hosea is like God in the sense that God isn't just at a whim, just like, oh, I just feel like loving this person. The next day, no, I don't really feel like loving you. When God is set on something, he will not turn away. And he set his love and affection on God and his people, Israel, and eventually the church, and he will not turn his love away. Hosea is loving like God does, intentionally, steadfastly, unconditionally. And this is really huge for us to grasp, and I hope, I don't know where all the attention is. I I look at eyes when I preach, and I, I don't know how to read certain visitors that I've never seen before. But, I, but this is so important for you to grasp. This is at the crux of Christianity. This is huge for us because God chose us not because we were better than others, not because we came from the right background or because we were gooder than others or because we had enough money or because we didn't do all the bad things that those other people do. He chose us because he wanted to love us. Out of the overflow of this beautiful love he had within something called the Trinity, it overflowed and said, we want to love some people. And he poured out his love on a chosen people. And then we get to receive that as the church. And this is really powerful and liberating because this goes against everything in our American culture that says, hey, you love me because I'm worthy of my love, of that love. You love me because of the things I do or the things that I can do for you. And this is so liberating for those who grasp this. And I pray, Holy Spirit, would you help us grasp this? Because it's liberating because it frees us from the trap of performance that all of us are tempted by in our culture, that you love me because I'm good enough to be loved or you love me because I'm good looking or whatever it is, but it's also very, very humbling because it strips us of all of our control. It strips us from saying, hey, I'm at the table because I deserve to be here. And it's the, the, this is really what the gospel is. At the, at the heart of it is a God who loves us even when we don't deserve it. And we're at his table, feeding from his hand. He's loving us, not because of anything we can bring to him, but because he's just chosen to love us. And it's simultaneously liberating and humbling. You know, I skipped this fact earlier that Hosea in Hebrew actually means salvation. Hosea means salvation. So if you reread the text, it's kind of like this. So salvation married Gomer. And Gomer cheated on salvation. And Gomer cared little of salvation. And, and Gomer rejected salvation and chose others over salvation. And so Israel is rejecting God's salvation. And Hosea's marriage is to be a walking billboard to everyone to say, hey, you see, you see Hosea's marriage? That is what is going on right now in the people of Israel. That's what's going on in the land. Look at Hosea's love for Gomer and how she's wayward and unfaithful, and that's exactly what's going on in the hearts of our people. But then God goes further. They have kids, and those kids are going to be walking billboards. Those kids are going to be a prophetic message. Now look at verse 3, if you would, with me. Hosea chapter 1, verse 3. So he went and took Gomer, again, the best name ever, and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I'll punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I'll put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. 
Now, Hosea is a book like many other books in the Bible that if you don't know some of the background of the Bible, you're going to be lost. And I will hope to hold your hand through this and kind of be your guide. Now, Hosea, he names his children names of judgment so that when people hear their names, it elicits to them emotion and thoughts and a message to them of this is what is going on. And so as those kids run around, they're supposed to be walking billboards of what is going to be happening one day in Israel. And I know if you're like me and you read that, you're like, man, God, why'd you do that? That's weird. Like, why would you name the kids such weird things, God? That seems unfair. Now, please know that just because they're named these names doesn't mean that these kids are destined for doom. Okay? They're not, they're not a rejection of these children per se. They're word pictures. In Hebrew culture, they really cared about meaning behind names. And so these names were loaded with meaning so that people would ask, hey, what does that kid's name mean? And then Homer, not Homer, Gomer, Gomer and Hosea, that's their celebrity name, their, their mixed name, you know, like Brangelina, it's, it's, it's Homer. Um, no? A little bit? Okay. All right. Thanks, guys. Um, and together, they would say, hey, well, his name means this. And people were like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe it means that. Well, why does he, why'd you name him that? Well, because God has a message for you. Now, the first kid's name is Jezreel. Why Jezreel? Well, everyone would know what Jezreel means. It's, it's basically like, like saying, hey, let's name our son Columbine or Parkland or Hiroshima. Okay, it would be very jarring. Everyone's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I know what that means. I'm, I, I kind of know what it means. That, that's bad. Why are you naming that? Well, know this. For hundreds of years, uh, 100 years before, God used Jehu as an instrument of justice against Queen Jezebel and King Ahab. Now, these were two kings in Israel that were very, very wicked, idol worship. They did, I mean, everything bad you can think of. And uh, they're judged by Jehu, and he destroys them. But Jehu kind of goes too far. And in the valley of Jezreel, he goes crazy, and he starts massacring all these kinds of people that he was never commanded to touch. He goes way beyond God's call for him. And then later on, you see that he is compromising himself. He has become the very thing that he loathed in Ahab and Jezebel. He starts uh, being okay with certain kinds of idol worship uh, in the high places. And he's okay with different political moves as long as it benefits himself, uh, no matter the consequences, no matter what he does. And so God sees these things. And if you read the rest of the book of Hosea, you're going to actually see that the very things that were happening in Ahab and Jezebel's time, Israel started to become them. The very thing they hated, they start to become again. And so, they have become Jezebel. They have become Ahab. They have become everything that they said they would not be and everything God has stood against. And now here's the punishment for Jezreel and punishment for Israel. Look at verse 5. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So in the very place that they massacred and went beyond, they are now going to be punished. Now, this kind of language, breaking the bow, okay, that's unfamiliar for our culture. Basically, the bow represent war. It represented military power. And so what, what was going on in Israel is Israel was putting hope in um, their military strength. As long as we have a strong enough military, enough horses, enough weapons, enough soldiers, we'll be safe and we'll be strong, we'll be good. Just kind of like when we say, as long as I have enough money in my 401k, or as long as I have enough money in my bank account, I will be safe and secure. They, they kind of put their hope in their military. And so what God says is just like you have become like Jehu, you have become like Ahab and Jezebel. I'm going to take the very thing you put hope in, your bow, 
and I'm going to break it over my knee. I'm going to crush the very thing you're putting your refuge and your hope in so that you have nowhere else to go but to me. And that is something that God does for a lot of us. A lot of you guys here, if you've been walking with Jesus any time, you've been through that, where you've put your hope in something, and God says, I love you too much to let you keep putting your hope in that. It will bring you death. And he destroys it. He breaks it over his knee. And all you have is either him or you, you further distance yourself from him. You either harden your heart and you, and, and you just keep running down the path of darkness. Or you say, oh, thank you. Thank you. I know that doesn't bring life. And you return back to him. And may God do that for many of us in here. Let's move on to the next child. Gomer has, it's really interesting that the next two children that are listed the third one, Ross is going to take next week. But the next one, it doesn't specifically say that Hosea was the father. Did you look at verse 3? Again, it says, So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Very specific. Him, a son. But then if you look at verse 6, she conceived again and bore a daughter. And it's not very clear. And the majority of scholars, I read about 10 scholars, they agree that they think that it means that she got those kids from other people. And Hosea is going to be fathering these children. They're, they're not his. And so things are going to get even darker. Look at this next billboard that they name. And the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy, for I will have no more mercy on the house of Israel and forgive them at all. No mercy. I have a daughter, many of you guys know, named Mercy. Mercy which is kind of weird to read this, that no mercy. There's one day we had a contractor come over to my house, and he was having a really rough day, and he loves our kids. And we handed him our daughter, Mercy. And when he picked up Mercy and held Mercy in his hands, arms, he felt like God spoke to him and said, I have given you mercy. And it made his day all the better. And it just touched his heart. Oh, this is a great reminder. This child is a reminder that I have mercy. Our next child is named Hope, and so we hope that when we hand people to people, <laughs> hope to people, people are like, ah, oh, yes, God has given me hope. Obviously, she won't literally do it, but God can use that, right? Are you track with me? Um, but in this situation, Hosea, if he's passing out his daughter, people say, oh, come here. What are they receiving? They're not receiving mercy. They're receiving no mercy. You see how jarring that would be? Oh, come here, little no mercy. Right? Constantly, this, as these kids would grow up and be around the community, it would just be a constant reminder, a billboard. Hey, listen, you're not going to receive mercy if you keep going down the path you're at. Wake up. Wake up. These judgments are real, and these kids are right in your face because it's gotten to that bad that we need a, to name a stinking toddler no mercy so you could wake up to know that you will not have mercy if you continue your ways. And this is the very opposite of the, the, the very character that God highlights. If you look at Exodus 34, 6, this is one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament. This declares God's character. Listen, listen to what Yahweh declares about himself. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed. This is, he's doing this in front of Moses. Yahweh, Yahweh, a Lord merciful and gracious. What's the first thing he describes himself as? Merciful. I mean, this is the very core of who God is. He's a merciful God. He's a gracious God. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And in verse 7, it keeps going on. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And let's stop there. And 
Israel loved that. They probably loved this message. They probably put it up on a plaque in their house. Got it stenciled in. But they probably never kept the, the back half of verse 7. Verse 7 says this. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That, I dare someone put that up in their, uh, in their living room. But you need that. You need a God that is both just and merciful. You need both of those attributes to be balancing each other out. If you do not have that, you do not have the, the God of the Bible. Israel ignored the second half of that verse. They ignored that God and they just wanted mercy. They just wanted blessing. But remember, he will by no means clear the guilty. Every single thing they did, he remembered, he jotted down, and even though he waited hundreds of years, he did not forget any one of them. And please know that this whole passage is telling them they have a chance. The fact that Hosea has a ministry is telling to the people, hey, I want you to change. Hey, I love you still. Hey, it doesn't have to go like that. Please turn. Please, please, please hear me. I'm doing these walking billboards so that you can wake up from your slumber. Look at verse 1, chapter 14. Hosea 14, verse 1. Return, O Israel, to Yahweh your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. He's not just saying, hey, I'm going to judge you. Just just letting you know I'm going to judge you. That's it. No, no, he's saying, I'm going to judge you, but I don't want to judge you. And if you return to me, there will be mercy. That's what God is doing here through Hosea. And despite all this doom and gloom that Israel was getting right in front of their face, all of a sudden the text shifts in verse 7. Surprisingly, it shifts, and it starts talking about Judah. You remember when I talked about Judah earlier? Judah was the southern kingdom. They're her sister. Verse 7. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will save them by bow, not by bow or by sword, or by war, or by horses, or by horsemen. Why is he talking about Judah all of a sudden? He's been talking to Israel, the northern kingdom. That's like talking to someone all of a sudden talking about their sister. It's like, why are you changing something to my sister? What does my sister do with anything? Well, well he's doing it because he's trying to say, listen, I'm going to show mercy on Judah. He doesn't give a reason why, but he's saying, I'm going to show mercy on Judah, and they're going to turn, I'm going to rescue them. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about Israel? Is that going to awaken you up to your sin? Is that going to shock you and say, wait, 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 why are they getting mercy, not us? See, because what God's doing, he's building a jealous hope in them. If, if God can have mercy on them, why can't he have it on me? Exactly, you can have it. And that's the whole point. But will they take it? No. If you know the history of the Bible, as decades go by, they ignore it. They just say, oh, no mercy, that's just a gag. That's, a, that's weird, crazy old Hosea and Gomer. This is what happens to them. Would you look at the screen? 2 Kings chapter 17, 5 through 18. I'm reading from the New Living Translation so, so you can kind of track with the narrative better. This is what happens to Israel because they don't obey. They don't listen. They don't wake up. Check it out. Then the kings of Assyria invaded the entire land, and for three years he besieged the city of Samaria. And if you know anything about siege warfare, that is not pretty. People are eating their own feces. People are eating their own children at this time. It's terrible. 
Finally, in the ninth year of King Hosea's reign, Samaria fell, and the people of Israel were exiled to Assyria. Actually, it doesn't say it, but later on in Isaiah, it will tell them that they were stripped naked and they were marched as captives. That's why Isaiah, the prophet, um, he, he, would, he preached naked to wake them up. This is what's going to happen to you. Verse 7, this disaster came upon the people of Israel because they worshipped other gods. They sinned against Yahweh their God who had brought them safely out of Egypt and had rescued them for the power of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. They had followed the practices of the pagan nations the Lord had driven from the land ahead of them, as well as the practice of the kings that Israel had introduced. The people of Israel also secretly done many things that were not pleasing to the Lord their God. They built pagan shrines for themselves in all their towns, and on and on. I mean, it gets so bad that later on it's going to even show that, that they, they sacrificed their children. And so God rejected them. Verse 16, they rejected all the commandments of the Lord their God, and they made calves of metal, and they set up Asherah poles and worshipped Baal and all the forces of heaven. They even sacrificed their own sons and daughters in the fire. They consulted fortune tellers and practiced sorcery and sold themselves to evil, arousing the Lord's anger. In verse 18, because the Lord was angry, very angry with Israel, he swept them away from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah remained in the land. I know that was a lot, and I skipped some of it, but I shared all that because I want us to feel the weight. Like, I asked in the beginning, at what point does God run out of mercy? What point does he grow out of patience, run out of patience? What does it take? What takes that? That's what it took. And it took hundreds of years of God being patient, hundreds of years of him being spit in the face, slapped in the face, ignored, scorned, for that to happen. Now, what happens to Judah? That same Assyrian army, Sennacherib, King Sennacherib, did this, that did all that craziness that we just read about, started, kept marching south towards Jerusalem. And at the gates of Jerusalem, he makes this threat. Hey, I'm going to do the same thing. No other king ever stood in my way. And you know what Judah does? King Hezekiah. He takes this letter, this threatening letter, and he goes to the temple of the Lord. And he just lays it before the Lord. And, and I can just imagine him on his face and just crying out. And Hezekiah prayed like he never prayed before, repented and turned to the Lord. And you know what happened? Second Kings verse 1935 happens. And that night, the angel of Yahweh went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Syrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Do you guys remember the prophecy in verse 7? Hosea 1.7, if you want to go back. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horse or by horsemen. You see? He didn't use a single weapon. One angel. 185,000 dead. And he had mercy on Judah and saved them. Now let's bring this home, because I know this is heavy and, and it would be inappropriate for me just to say amen. Enjoy your dinner. Let's think about some implications. At our church, we talk about five different questions that we want to read, we want to ask ourselves regularly when we read the Bible. Five questions that really get us at the heart of the Bible and what God is trying to say and what he is like. So the first question we already talked about is what's the context? What's going on? You always want to start there. And the second is, what does this say about God? What does it say about God? Well, a couple of things that we can think about. This passage teaches us that God is just, that he will by no means clear the guilty. He remembers these transgressions, and he will 
he will punish. And yet we see that he's patient. He's very patient. His patience lasts years and years and years. And yet we also see that there's a limit to his patience. If he keeps calling you to return and you say, no, come, no, come, no, come, no, eventually said, he won't say come anymore. He'll be done. But we also see this immense desire for change and mercy. And another chance and another chance and another chance. Hey, I'm going to show mercy on your sister Judah who's wicked but not as wicked as you. And as I show mercy on Judah, may that turn your heart to be jealous for mercy for yourself. Now let's look at the second question, or third question. What has he done? What has God done here? What do we see about God? Well, he has given warnings over and over to Israel and Judah, and he's unbelievably patient, and he's given mercy to Judah. And, and check this out. If we, if we go further back and we kind of zoom out to, to think about the New Testament and Jesus, God doesn't just apathetically say, oh, Hosea, you go marry a prostitute or marry this woman. He actually comes in the flesh as a son and commits himself to the church, knowing full well that all of us will cheat on him one day. He gets his hand dirty. He gets, gets himself right in the muck of all things. He came and committed himself to Sam Choi, me, me, a sinner, me who have been so wayward so many times in my life, even after I became a Christian. He, he doesn't just apathetically sit on this corner and say, hey, oh, yeah, you guys do it. No, no, no. He gets right there in the thick of things. And no matter what kind of objection you have about God and the problem of evil and how could he, he plays by his own rules. Just know that. He puts himself right there in the front lines and he gets shot. Four people, even though he's never done anything wrong. That's, that's my God. Fourth question, who are we? Well, it depends. We're all cheaters, at least, and unfaithful to God at one level. But depending on how you respond to him, you're either the forgiven ones or you're the ones who are going to be judged by him. And so here's a natural question. The last one is how should we now live in light of all that we've talked about and seen? How should we now live? Well, there's three types of people to address. Number one, for those who are like Israel, the reason why I say for like Israel, because did you know that Israel during this whole time, they were still celebrating the Sabbath, kind of? Did you know that Israel was still going to temples and sacrificing? And so all the while, while they're doing all these harlotries and cheating on, on God on other, other idols and nations, they're still doing these things. And so these are the churchy people that I want to address. And I ask the question, does God have a limit to his patience? And the answer is yes, if you're not one of his. If you're not one of his people, he does have a limit to his patience. If you're one of his children, his patience with you is unlimited. And yet, that's hard to know because we all struggle with sin. So let me address your attention to 1 John 3, 8 through 10. This is a really important passage. If you here wonder, hey, how do I know if I'm a Christian? Like, how can I tell? Well, this is a really powerful passage to go to. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, this, this, this book will go further. If you have questions about if you're safe, 1 John is a great place to go. This, this passage will go further to say he's not saying that you're not going to be without sin. 
Christians are sinless. Well, what he's saying is that you're going you're gonna to have a heart that is going to respond to these warnings. You're going to fight your sin. You're going to hate your sin. Even if you struggle with your sin and you fall back into it, you're going to say, I don't want that. I, I do want God. I do love you, and I'm sick of cheating on you, but I, but I keep going back. Help me, help me, help me. Those are the people that God will have unlimited mercy with, unlimited patience with. But if you're just like, you know what? I prayed a prayer one day. I got baptized. I got my name in the Bible. I'm good, and God's grace will abound on me. There will be no mercy for you if you have that kind of attitude. You are spurning his grace. And that mercy will run out sooner or later. Let me address the second person as we're wrapping up for the non-Christian. You may be like Israel and say, oh, none of this will happen. It's been hundreds of years. No judgment. It will come. Only a matter of time. And you will be judged on that day, and there will be no mercy for you. And on that day, it's too late to say, I'm sorry, God. I'm sorry, God. And right now, if you're here, you're getting a chance. You're getting a chance. So you cannot say that day, I didn't know. You do know right now. You must turn and must trust him or you will perish forever. And God has made a way so that you do not have to perish. And that's the good news, that Jesus perished for your sake so that all your sins, all your condemnation, all your shame, all your past can be put on the Son, and that you can receive forgiveness and mercy. And that's the beauty of the gospel. No matter who you are, no matter how bad your background is, God has mercy for you if you want it. And please surrender and return, receive this acceptance and get baptized and trust in Jesus. We'd love to tell you more about that if you're interested. And number three, for the Christians. Hey, up there, up there, you got to hear this. This is so important. You don't understand. If you miss this out and you're laughing right now, you could go to hell and I don't want you to. You got to hear this. This is life and death. You gotta hear this. I'm so full of love for you right now. I know I look angry, but I'm just so begging for you to wake up. I just saw a girl get arrested in my house today because she's not awakened spiritually. And I don't want that to be for you. And I don't know your background. And I know I sound like a crazy nut, but this is life and death. You gotta understand mercy will run out if you keep spurning him. You gotta understand this. This is reality. This is more real than anything you see on TV, more real than anything else. For the Christian, we have to remember God has had mercy on us. The only reason why I could say such a thing to you without pride is because I've been given mercy. I don't deserve mercy. I'm such a sinner. I don't deserve God's love. And so I don't sit under any of you guys. I know there's so many visitors, and I know APC, some of you guys brought your family, and they're like never going to come again after this. But listen, I'm not saying this to you, standing over you in judgment. I don't deserve grace. I don't deserve mercy. This is all grace on me. And I just want you to receive that grace today. And so, dear Christian, I just want to ask, are you completely devoted to your God today? Not years ago, one day when you prayed at a camp or prayed at an altar, but today, are you fully devoted to him? Jesus made a way for us, guys. And I, just, I just need to pray. i got to end. Father, I don't, no matter what I say or if I yell or if I cry, if your spirit doesn't transform a heart, I can do nothing. I am so helpless. And Lord, I just pray if anyone feels the offense of the gospel, that they would receive the, 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 the shock that that mercy is available for them. That you are a better God, you are a better king, that you are better than their careers, you're better than anything they're putting their hope in. And that these students up here who just laugh, that they would receive your grace. They would be wakened to reality. 
that heaven and hell are real, eternity is real. And I just want every single person in here to receive that mercy. I don't want anyone to leave today with uncertainty if they're going to be with you forever. And so would you just rescue everyone and all the visitors that we have? Thank you, God, for your mercy towards me. Thank you, God, for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.